This is Archive Atlanta, episode 39, Olmsted Linear Parks. You're listening to Archive Atlanta, a history podcast where each week I'll be sharing a story about the people, places, and events that shape the history of the city of Atlanta. I'm your host, local tour guide, and total history nerd, Victoria Lemos. Hey guys, happy Friday. So you've been listening to this podcast, you have heard me say the name Olmsted many times. I've quickly mentioned him as the designer of Central Park, but then never much more detail. So I don't ever want to talk about something that I assume everyone knows what I mean or who a person is. Basically, I'm trying to sound less elitist. (laughs) And I have a personal funny story that seems applicable here. Growing up, I was a huge art lover. I still am. And as a young child in a small town, my love of art was limited to the masters that we all know, right? Picasso, you know, Van Gogh. So every year in elementary school, we would have to go to the library, pick out a book, and do a book report. Every year, I'd put the same book. It was a Vincent Van Gogh biography, which, by the way, don't tell Roundhill Elementary, but I definitely permanently checked that book out, and I have it on my bookshelf right now. I also loved Edgar Degas. If that doesn't sound familiar, he is most famous for his paintings of ballerinas. Fast forward, I'm in high school. I'm at the Metropolitan Museum of Art, and there is a Degas exhibit newly opened. I'm so excited. I walk up to the employee behind the podium, and I ask her where the Edgar Degas exhibit is. Her face literally contorts while she scoffs and laughs at me and says, Degas is upstairs. So I don't want to be that person. (laughs) If you hear me say something that I assume that you know and you don't know, send me a message. Let me know. All of this to say that this week's episode is about Frederick Law Olmsted, his connection to Atlanta, and the linear park that he left for us to enjoy. Because of his fame, many places will try and connect their parks and green spaces and neighborhoods to him. Sometimes this can follow the vein of George Washington slept here, you know what I mean? But Olmsted himself started many projects here, and even if he was not able to complete them because of his death, his sons would finish the job. So let's begin with the man himself, who I found in this research to have a really interesting life. Frederick was born in Connecticut in 1822. His mother died when he was only four in what is described as a suicide after suffering prolonged postpartum depression. Frederick walked in the room to find his mother dead, so that was really traumatic at a young age. His father then remarried only a few years later, and his stepmom basically cast him from the home, sending him to boarding schools. It's said that Frederick and his brother shared a love of the outdoors and that nature was an escape for him as a young man. An escape he definitely needed. Uh, He went on to suffer through a lot more dreadful events, watching a teacher burn to death, surviving physical abuse. Many modern writers position that he most likely developed some kind of post-traumatic stress disorder. Shortly before he would start classes at Yale, he got sumac poisoning, which is pretty similar to poison ivy, but it was so bad it actually affected his eyesight and he had to step back. He spent time as an apprentice seaman, then a merchant, and eventually settling on a 125-acre farm on Staten Island. Fun fact is that that property is still there and it's actually being restored um, and cared for it as we speak. Olmsted would later have a short, successful journalism career, and it would be an assignment for the New York Times that would bring him down to Atlanta in 1852. His very first time in the South, he was writing an article about slavery's effects on the Southern economy. So after returning to New York, he meets one of the commissioners planning Central Park, and they tell him that there's a construction superintendent job open. 
He applies and is selected in 1858. Working on what is arguably the world's most famous park would bring Olmsted to what he described as his, quote, life's calling. In 1859, he married Mary Cleveland. This is where things get a little odd. She was the widow of his brother, John. So his brother had died two years prior, and when Frederick married her, he would gain three stepchildren, but they were also his nieces and nephews. So her kids' names were John, Charlotte, and Owen. He and Mary would go on to have three children of their own, named Marion, Frederick Jr., and then another child who um, did not survive infancy. Throughout his career, Olmsted made a name for himself with private commissions and grand estates. Um, He did the Biltmore in North Carolina. I'm sure everyone's heard of that one. But it is said that his true love was urban planning and public enjoyment of outdoor spaces. He really wanted to connect people to their environment. By 1892, Olmsted would make his second trip to Atlanta, and this time it's at the request of developer Joel Hurt. Joel Hurt certainly has his own episode coming one day, but he was the developer of Druid Hills, also Inman Park, um, but Druid Hills was a plan that he hired Olmsted to develop. Before becoming the famous neighborhood that it is today, all of this land was rural and populated by a few sparse farms. Joel Hurt forms the Kirkwood Land Company in the 1890s, and it purchases 1,500 acres of this farmland to construct Druid Hills. From its inception, the idea was to make this a, quote, ideal residential suburb, end quote. And he was pretty good at this because he had just done the exact same thing with Inman Park, which was the first suburb of Atlanta. So Joel hires who at this point is very well-known, Frederick Law Olmsted, to design the layout. And Olmsted is at the peak of his career. He was picky about what he was going to work on. But it turns out that Atlanta was really close to Asheville, and he was in Asheville working on the Biltmore, and he thought that Atlanta would be a good gateway to him getting commissions in the South. The early plan for the neighborhood and the parks was presented in 1893, but that same year is also known as the Panic of 1893, which was a severe recession that killed any kind of new projects or developments in the city. We all know how this works because we all lived through our last recession not too long ago. Joel Hurt lost financial backing for the project, and needless to say, the idea of Druid Hill stayed just an idea for almost a decade. And although, yes, Druid Hills was designed and planned by Frederick, the true story is a little more convoluted. That traumatic life that I mentioned earlier, Olmsted would suffer with mental health issues. Um, Eventually, at the end of his life, he would kind of be senile. And he spent the last five years of this life in McLean Hospital, which was a prestigious Massachusetts mental institution. Frederick would die in 1903, and his firm carried on under the leadership of his son, Frederick Jr., and his stepson-slash-nephew, John Charles. They call themselves the Olmsted Brothers, and they would continue to develop the Druid Hills Platt um, with final plans completed around 1905-ish. Things, of course, had changed, though, right? So many of Olmsted Sr.'s ideas were retained, but some roads were straightened out a little bit, some were added, some were removed. He had two proposed lakes that were never built. The large open space in the center of the neighborhood was retained, and it was kind of realized as the golf course that they have today. 
What I find ironic is that in his last days of the senior Olmsted life, he is writing in the asylum. They say he was really of sound mind at the end. But he's explaining how upset he is that he had set the hospital plans for designs and they never used them. So, you know, maybe it's a good thing he wasn't alive to see his sons change his plans for Druid Hills and for the linear parks. The construction of the Ponce de Leon Corridor began in 1905. So you've not been down this street, I can't imagine who has not, but it's really the main thoroughfare that's taking you from the Highlands and the city of Atlanta into Decatur. I learned a fun fact in this reading. The term parkway was actually coined by Olmsted and an early partner that he had in the 1860s. The idea was to create a space for people to travel and bring pleasure while, quote, walking, riding, and the driving of carriages for rest, recreation, refreshment, and social intercourse, end quote. The social intercourse thing threw me off. Uh, But Frederick tried to create a parkway in his very first suburb plan, which was just outside of Chicago, but he never was able to do it. But he was able to do it in Atlanta, which makes it so special. It was first suggested um, in an 1890 letter that he wrote to Joel Hurt where he says that the parkway should be spacious um, as much as possible, finely constructed, blah, 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 you know, talks about trees. The best part, though, is that Hurt receives this message and almost instantly goes and sends a telegram in response that says bluntly, quote, map of avenue received, thoroughly impractical, will break company to build it, end quote. That one cracked me up. The biggest wallet buster was that Olmsted wanted the trolley line to run through the parkland bordering Ponce de Leon, not actually on Ponce, which is standard, right? Whenever you see an old streetcar, it's actually on the roadway. The plot thickens, though, because Olmsted was undeterred. There are several more letters back and forth. And the firm explains the fine design points and the draw of having the streetcar off the roadway. They claim that it was cheaper to build it on turf or grass, it could travel at faster speeds, and it would be hidden from view from homeowners. And believe it or not, Olmsted's design won. By 1908, Hertz Kirkwood Land Company was struggling financially and he sold the firm and its interest in Druid Hills to a group of investors. Now, this group was made up of some big Atlanta names. You have um, Asa Candler from Coca-Cola. You have the Adair brothers. And they would organize the Druid Hills Corporation and then take on the continuing work of developing the neighborhood. Here is where we have to look at timeline. The original Olmsted plans are before the turn of the century, The initial development begins around 1905, and now we're headed into the 1910s. Economic trends are different, real estate market has changed, things have to adjust. So again, you have some roads change direction slightly, shapes and lots were replatted, and then you have a lot more smaller, affordable lots and denser development around this area. The story of Druid Hills is super fascinating and certainly one I want to have an entire episode on, so I don't want to get too detailed in there today. But I do want to turn your attention to the other side of Ponce de Leon. So this is home of the linear parks. As Frederick would describe them, quote, numerous small grounds so distributed through a large town that some of them could easily be reached by a short walk from every house, end quote. So try to bring yourself back let's say, to the 1890s. 
This land was farmland with a few homes. It wasn't even Atlanta. The city was a whole four miles away. Olmstead designed the parkway alongside the linear park. So there's six distinct spaces that would line the street and fulfill that ideal that he described in this writing. Druid Hills would be a suburb, but within a shared landscape that was available for all to use. And yes, we can explore that sentence more because it wasn't really, you know, for all to use, but my soapbox is in the repair shop this week, so I'm going to stop there. In total, these 45 acres are hidden in plain sight to so many Atlantans. I just explored them for the first time, and it was almost an accident. Today, I'll give you a quick description of each one, kind of how to get there, and hopefully convey how special they are. The largest and closest to Decatur, so furthest from the city of Atlanta, is called Deep Den. And this one confuses me because it's not on the earliest Olmstead plans, so I'm not sure if this was a later addition by his sons, um, or maybe it wasn't on the map for another reason, but it is the one that I did not get to go to. So it's different than all of the others. It's 22 acres, which is the biggest one. And the trails here are mainly unpaved. So it does not kind of as neat of a walking experience, if you want to call it that. It has a stream running through it. um, And then the name comes from a natural kind of depression in the topography. The land is owned by the Fernbank Museum, but it is leased back to DeKalb County as a public park. Now we're going to travel west towards Atlanta. The next linear park you're going to find is called Delwood, and that one comes from Del, which means a hollow, which is kind of at the far end. And Olmsted's plan here was to evoke the pastoral English countryside. And I'm not going to lie, it kind of does feel like that when you're there. After Delwood, you have Shadyside, which is named for the wooded shady area. These were not super original names, by the way. Um, This park has a bridge, a small waterfall, all of these extra things. There's a pool as well. They were all completed in the 1930s as WPA projects. The park in the middle was originally labeled Brightwood on the earliest plans, but the brothers suggested Oak Grove in a letter dated from 1904. I think the idea was to tie in with Oakdale Road, In 1928, Druid Hills Garden Club would establish the first civic garden in Oak Grove. As we head closer to Atlanta, the next park is called Virgilie. So the Olmsted firm suggested naming this one Oaklawn, again, keeping with those really simplistic nature-themed names and kind of tying in the streets. So you may be asking, how did we get to Virgilie? But it was actually the name of Joel Hurt's youngest daughter. She died as a very young child, and so this park was named in her honor. And Virgilie is buried at the family plot in Oakland Cemetery, because I have to squeeze in a cemetery in every episode. (laughs) Finally, the first or the last, depending on where you started, is Springdale. John Charles suggested that this name uh, be based on the several springs located, and it's near Springdale Road. On a later plan of the parks, um, one of the springs is actually listed and named. It's called Silver Bell Spring, but we don't know much about the rest of them. Many people confuse Springdale with Springvale Park, which is the centerpiece of Inman Park. To make matters even more confusing, the history that I have always heard is that Springvale in Inman Park, was also designed by Frederick Law Olmsted. 
I'm currently trying to get to the bottom of this mystery with the help of some friends. So hopefully by the time the Inman Park episode is released, I will have an official answer. Now, as the years passed, the linear parks deteriorated, um, you know, sometimes caused by weather, mostly caused by people. Changes in the designs were certainly not Olmsted approved. And then inside the city limits in general in Atlanta in the late 60s, 1970s, there was a bit of a rough period. As the suburbs exploded, the need for bigger roadways occurred, and so the linear parks were slated for a planned highway that would completely swallow up the parkland. If this sounds familiar, Inman Park has a long history with the highway, but interestingly enough, Druid Hills also fought that same highway as well. They survived that first highway fight by gaining historic designation in 1979, but here we are, not too long after, and another highway threat is imminent. The Olmsted Park Society is formed in 1983. And while its primary goal is to fight the highway, but it really also wanted to restore the parks to the way they were originally planned. After 10 years of fighting, this is 1992, the court finally rules against the Georgia Department of Transportation, no highway, and the land is saved. I think the victory certainly invigorated the people that had been fighting, but also brought some attention to the space. So just three years later, a new coalition of civic groups and organizations come together and they make a master plan. By 1997, they were formally named the Olmsted Linear Park Alliance. Talking about this, you know, very quickly, but it would take 14 long years to complete this massive undertaking of bringing these parks back to look the way that Frederick Law Olmsted intended. They moved earth, literally moved the earth. They reshaped the shape of the ground, the trees, the flowers, the shrubs. They were all matched against the original plans. They created the paved pathways that you could walk on now, the benches, the historical markers. Today, this park looks as closely as it did over a century ago. Olmsted believed that it was important for citizens to be able to access nature and even insisted that it was political duty of the government to provide public places to do so. If you have not been to these parks, you have to go. Let me tell you my favorite way to get there. So when I was biking with my daughter, we um, took the Freedom Trail, which is off of the Beltline. You go through Freedom Park, past Candler Park, and you're pretty much there. You can pick a go left or go right. Um, We traveled all the way down through the parks and then looped back around. As if the parks were not beautiful enough, you get to see the incredible mansions of Druid Hills, which I can hopefully explain in a future episode. When it comes to Olmsted in Atlanta, there are other places that claim his name. So Inman Park has some influences. The communities that grew around Druid Hills and kind of north say the same things. The Olmsted brothers did submit a redesign of Piedmont Park, I think in 1912, maybe? That was shelved because of budget concerns and then kind of partially implemented later. But this is our Olmsted claim to fame. But not just that, it's one of his very last projects. And a lot of scholars that write about him and his work say that You know, this was one of his most important projects because he got to fully realize things like the linear parks and the parkway that he was not able to do in other places. So there you have it, the story of Frederick Law Olmsted and the linear parks. 
Thank you for listening. Make sure you guys go and explore these. Remember, if you do and go take photos, tag me with hashtag Archive Atlanta so I can see your lovely pictures. If you're enjoying the podcast, please rate and leave a review where you listen. If you want to be an extra awesome history lover, head on over to Patreon, P-A-T-E-R-O-N dot com forward slash Archive Atlanta, where you can contribute $1 a month that helps me fund the research and production of this little labor of love. Hope everyone has a great weekend, and I'll talk to you next week. Bye!